Hello and welcome to Information Revolution, the podcast for people interested in managing, finding and sharing their information. And uh, for regular watchers, you can see we're doing things slightly differently this week. And that's because we've got a special guest, yay, that I'm really excited to, <laughs> to have with us. So first of all, we'll just do the usual round of introductions. So I'm Judy Verno, and I'm an information architect based in Wellington and working for a little company called Metataxis. Michael? Well, Upton, I call myself an information management consultant, uh, and I work for that same company, Metataxis in Wellington. And I'm Carl Melrose. I work for Castle Point Systems in Canberra. My views are my own. Let's just be really clear about that. And uh, <laughs> what, what, what's next? We, we're going to get home a little bit nervous. This is a new process. We're going to get Amy to introduce herself next? or uh... <laughs> I, think, I think that needs to happen, doesn't it? So, Amy Stocks, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yes. So, I'm Amy Stocks. <laughs> I am a human-centred design evangelist um, and I work for a little consultancy in Wellington called Good People and we help organisations try and make human-centred design work for them whatever that looks like. Thanks that's that's great and I, I was thinking before this that um, I do most of my work is around information architecture so I'm a big fan of the whole context content user approach so why are we doing this uh, what does the content look like? What's its structure? What's its format? What kind of thing is it? Is it? Um, and then you've got the interaction with the users, which of course is really important. But something that I've struggled with in the past is getting users to think about what they could have. I mean, given technological constraints, of course, but what do they, they they're often quite just used to the standard way of doing things because that's all they know. Mm -hmm. What kind of uh, techniques or tools do you have for helping to th people to think a bit, say, outside the box and think about what would actually help them rather than the constraints of what they know? So the first thing I do is usually work with the people who are running the program of work. And I will always say, you know what you know and you know how you want it to work. Your users don't have any idea of what you're trying to achieve. Right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so to get them to think the way that you want them to think, you first need to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Right. Yeah. So rather than looking at it as how do we get people to do X, first of all, you need to understand why they're doing Y. So, because, um, for example, if they are not filing things the way that you want them to file, why are they not doing it? Is it just because they don't want to? Is it because they're just feckless? <laughs> or is there some reason that... Um, that either they've learnt, have they got a workaround, have they, do they not understand the consequences of their actions? Like what is going on for them? So my first piece of advice would be to start with why and try to understand the context of the people and what they're doing before you then 
uh, attempt to match that with what you need them to do. So it's like a gap analysis. There's what they're doing and then there's what you need them to do. Yeah. Total sense to me. <laughs> yeah. and, and actually, I, I think it would be really helpful. Um, can we back up just a fraction? What, do, yeah. what does it mean to be a human-centred designer? It means, so human-centred design is a internationally recognised ISO standard for um, designing systems <laughs> and processes. Um, it came from ergonomics, so it originates in ergonomics. And uh, so understanding how people fit with tools and systems and environments. So you don't build a chair without understanding that there's somebody who's going to sit on it, right? So in my role as a human-centered designer, I mostly work in public sector organizations and they usually have lofty goals to implement a process or a system. It's usually a piece of tech. Um, but what then they struggle with, what they're not very good at, is understanding the people who are ultimately going to use that process or system or piece of tech, piece of technology. And and it's like what I was explaining to Judy there. It's understanding what you need to do for the people who are the end users, but also the people supporting the process inside an organisation as well to make that work for the outcomes that you're looking for. And when you get it right? And when you get it right, it should it should work, right? Because everybody's doing... Um, everybody's doing what is right for the goal, the objective, and them. And you hopefully have reduced risk and reduced internal inefficiencies, and it's easier. Have I seen it work perfectly? No. <laughs> <laughs> because I work mainly in big, complex organisations, so I'm usually getting small wins. Okay, and you've got a background level of complexity that just makes it means you're always trying to get an optimal fit rather than something that is perfect. Oh, yeah. I've never seen perfect. Um, usually, so at the moment, I spend a lot of time with organisations that have some high-level objective to deliver customer services, but they are not traditionally customer service-orientated organisations. So... So much needs to change in order to reorient your organisation towards what the people you're serving need. And those people might be citizens, right? And your idea of a service was previously regulatory or compliance-based activity. So how do you switch that from what the people are trying to do to what you ultimately need them to do to comply? So does this imply that the uh, the senior people that you're talking about, um, that they understand how they want their people to work? No. I, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> no. The senior people I'm working with know they have a system that they need to implement. So that might be... Um, it might be a website. I've worked with a Crown Research 
um, institute that was changing their internal project management system, they had the piece of tech. They didn't know anything about how they were going to make the people use the piece of tech. Um, and so that piece of tech failed. The implementation failed and nobody used it. Um, so, yeah, a lot of my work is working with leadership and working internally with an organisation to understand what are people trying to do and how do we get them to do the thing we want them to do, but without pushing it on the people, trying to understand from the bottom up what are the levers we can pull to make it happen. So working from the bottom up, that means working with the I hate using the word users, but anyway, um, users to teach them how to do it differently or what does that mean? So we, I usually go through the, um, the design process, so discovery, define, design, and then deliver, I guess. I never get to delivery. Um, <laughs> but... So the first thing I would do is start with the why. So why do we want to know about what these, what our people are doing? Um, because we want to understand what we can't see, because we want stories and evidence instead of speculation. Normally because we want to shut down arguments and circular conversations at the, at the stakeholder level. Um, and then I go through a process of, trying to understand who do we know the least about and what does it mean to talk to those people or not. So what's at risk if we don't talk to people? So we could ask the senior stakeholders, try to understand what the senior stakeholders are doing, but are they ultimately the people who will have the most impact on changes to the system? So um, there are two different ways to go about it so I'll just call back to what you said about teaching people I feel mm. I think teaching people comes later once you understand what their context is um so there's two ways of looking at do you want to understand what people's behaviors are so do you want to know what they're struggling with what makes them efficient or inefficient what can they find or not find what tasks are they doing um, what are they successful at or do you want to understand what their attitudes are? So do you want to know what people think and feel and say? Or do you want to know what their motivations are? And this is probably a key for you guys. Do you want to know what their expectations are? So um, this, you would do different, um, use different tools to understand those two different um, sets of uh, questions. I think that's really interesting straight away just because thinking about trying to apply this internally, I mean, you know, mm. in the context of managing information or architecting it, um, I just think so much of our focus would be on that first set of questions, right, yeah. the, or, or that, that first goal of trying to understand things about what people are doing rather than what their expectations or mindsets or expectations are. So I yeah. expectation twice. Anyway, their attitudes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you were doing um, some behavioural um, research, you were you might be asking why can't people find this? Why? How do they file this? Um, 
And can they recognise something? Like can they find a search bar? Can they find a folder? Can they work their way through an information architecture tree structure? Mm. If you were doing subjective, you would be asking what do you, what do you expect to find? What do you expect to be looking for? Um, why do you file that document on your desktop instead of using the um, organisation-sanctioned records management system? Why do you think that's faster or easier? Um, and how do you feel if you can't find something? And how does and then try to understand how that might affect their future behaviour. So yeah, so that's really <laughs> useful, right? So if somebody says to, to you, "Well, I keep it on my desktop because it's faster for me to find it," um, and because I tried to file it and then I couldn't find it again, right? So that's why my I perpetuate this behaviour. So then you're starting to tease out the things that you need to address when you are doing your implementation um and and it might be with the subjective stuff that that can be like the really the really interesting motivational stuff so why do you why do people feel the way that they feel about um what they're doing with their documents or when they're finding things and what does that mean for what you need to do in the future to um reduce the occurrence of that happening. And do you do people get defensive when you start asking questions around that? Well, no, because, <laughs> because of the way you're going to ask those questions. Yeah, sure. So you are coming in with um, a novice mindset. So you're coming in and you don't know anything about what they're doing. So you're coming in and you are being curious and you um, you should have really clear ideas about what you want why you're there and what you want to understand and then you want to be really curious and really neutral about what you're doing so you ask open-ended questions and not closed questions and you make it clear that you are seeking to understand their world and not trying to uh, solutionize at that point Mm, mm. Um, The other thing that's important to do is if you want to know what people are doing and you're going to invest the time in going and finding what people are doing is to spend the time to set up what what you want to know and why. So that's the behavioural or subjective stuff that we were talking about. But also um, do you want to know why things are happening and how to fix them or do you want to know how many people are experiencing something and how often? So those are two different um, activities again. So the why is more explorative and more qualitative, and then the how many is more more narrow um, and more qualitative. So numbers, no, quantitative. Always get those confused. (laughs) Feelings and numbers. One is feelings, one is numbers. Um, So all of that affects what you're going to do. So if you... You set up some questions that will help you understand what you're trying to do, and that helps keep your scope as well. It means you're also not going on a fishing expedition, trying, and everybody's going to tell you all their problems as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, been there. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, 
so you want to keep that really tight from the beginning. It also helps um, set expectations for stakeholders and leadership about what you're going to find out. So you're probably not going to find everything, and you, you know, that's just not um, not reasonable. Um, but it's about we know that this we want we know we need to know more about this, so we're going to go and find out about it. Um, and the other thing that's important is a lot of people will do like a scattergun approach we try and get like lots of people um, to get their opinions and views but if you do that you're it's actually more it's more work than it's worth so you're better off going for smaller numbers of people who do the same mm -hmm. things so that you can see patterns so the really important thing is to is to be able to find patterns so if you go and do some um, do some research with people about uh, how they're finding things. The CEO is going to be different from the receptionist, from the middle manager, from the intern, from the receptionist. So you need to pick maybe five people who have broadly the same, doesn't have to be job titles, but broadly the same um, understanding and tasks that they need to do. And then, then you can start to see patterns with what they're doing. Um, and I'm talking about this as if there's one way to go and talk to these people, but there's there's not. Um, there's different ways that you can do it based on what you want to find out. But the easiest thing to start with is um, sitting down with people and interviewing them or watching what they're doing. So you're yeah, so very much an in person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Discussion. So you, yeah. You can do it online, um, but again, it depends on what you're trying to find out and why. So if you're online, the answers that you get from people are going to be more. They're going to be shorter, and you're going to lose context from their environment, and you and you might be able to see their screen, but it's easier for them to. I won't say hide, but it's easier for them to um, not show you everything that's going on. Whereas if you're in person, you'll be able to see if there are pieces of paper over here. Yes. And, yes. You know, you'll be able to see their desktop is littered with files. Um, the autonomic step that, sort of that they don't tell you about because they don't even realise they're doing it. Yep, exactly, exactly. Whereas if you're online, it's, yeah. The lens is a lot is a lot narrower. Yeah, I think that's um, something that I think was we brought up before in the podcast. That thing of where people just naturally lean towards just sort of describing the things that yeah, a they think about themselves and b they feel they should be doing. They'll kind of yeah. moderate their you know if you kind of ask them well how do you do something and someone just get someone to verbally explain it, they're not sort of tell you about. It, yeah, they just so the almost subconsciously just sort of lean towards something that's kind of like what they hope you would like them to say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I think that's really a really important thing to call out is that um, you don't ask them straight out what they do and what they think, because you're right. They will people will just tell you what you want to hear. So there are different ways that you can do that. So. Um, there you can set some tasks and 
and they might be really sort of, they might seem sort of um, mm. unrelated, but but what's happening when you're doing this is that you're teasing out information about behaviours and attitudes. So you can ask people about a sequence. So do, what, what order do they do things in? And that reveals quite a lot that about um, why they're doing things and how. You can get them to describe a task or get them to move through a task and show it to you. Um, or you can get them to, you know, or you can set specific tasks to find things or comprehend things. Um, you can also do different types of um, way. There's different ways you can understand what people call things. So you can do um, really basic card sorting, so writing down uh, labels on pieces of card and getting people to move them around or getting them to put them in categories that they call themselves. Um, yeah, it's, it all depends on what what you're trying to find out. But, yeah, so you don't ask straight out, why do you do this? You have to get people to sort of, you have to draw it out of people. You have to be really curious. It sounds like it needs quite a bit of research beforehand to understand the kinds of things that, the kind of tasks that they need to do, for example. Yeah. yeah. So one thing you can, it's really good. You, yeah, you would really struggle if you just went cold into starting doing doing this sort of activity. Um, it's really good to get all your stakeholders together in a workshop and just get everybody's assumptions out about what, every, what you think people are trying to do. So, well, we think that nobody is filing this because why? Um, and then... You could use that to shape what you're going to ask and what you're going to look for. Um, and then you can use it to um, validate or dispute um, at a later date as well. Um, yeah, you can talk to people's managers about the sort of tasks they do or look at the org chart. Yeah, so generally you would do some sort of pre-discovery, I call that. And it sounds like um, a kind of a bonus feature or whatever, like an extra benefit of that is that you are setting those expectations, as you mentioned, you're not just going on some general fishing expedition where you're going to discover everything in the universe, but mm -hmm. um, if you're about to do a piece of this kind of discovery work, then you, you set those expectations about what it is you might go and find with the stakeholders so that they don't come back yeah. going, but I thought we were answering this thing or what about that over here? Yeah. yeah. So I think I think you have to be really important tight. as well. I think you have to be really tight about discovery because um I think people are getting discovery fatigue. Especially like <laughs> yeah. senior stakeholders, right? They're getting discovery fatigue where people go off and discover things and then don't come back with anything. So that's why all that set up about what do you want to know and why and who do you want to talk to and are they the right people and are they the right number of people is really important because that will keep that tight and scoped. And then you can also come to, come back to that after you've done the research and go, well, this is what we set out to find. Did we find it? Why, why not? And how do we? How can we report back on what we said we were going, going looking for? We've talked before about... Um how sometimes this kind of work isn't seen as the work at all, you know, yeah. of value. 
You know, people yeah. are like, let's just go on with it. Let's just do the thing. And, and this is yeah. the, this is the thing that so, I. So, do you find that that tightness of scope is, you know, does that help to kind of mitigate that? Does that get people more on board? If you say, look, we're trying to nail the specific, and people are more or less likely to go, yeah, all right, we'll pay for that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure. Sure. <laughs> um. So. I've got my business partner has done the most beautiful diagram, which I don't have to hand right now, but it is, um, it's a curve and it's about um, effort versus risk for doing the sort of research up front, right? So the more, basically the more effort you put in up the front, the more you know about who the people are and what they're trying to do, the more your risk goes down towards the end of the project. Because you, if you put in the work at the front, you're going to tease out the stuff about the behaviours and the attitudes that will come back to hurt you when you get to implementation and training. So a lot of the time you can fix things with training, but do you know what the things are that you need to be training for? Because this is something that that would help you identify that. If you do that research in the beginning and go, well, we know that people aren't doing X, Y, this, but it's it's just a knowledge thing. It's just because they don't know. Then you can identify that as something that you're going to address in, in the training. So it, I say it, you've got to go slow to go fast, right? The If you do the setup work, yeah, it's a real hot take. Nobody else says that. Um, if you do this work, you're just... I thought you're just saving work down the line. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to be blunt, it seems totally obvious to me, but it isn't something that. And this is you know, this is the question that I keep wanting to come back to. It's this all sounds like amazingly common sense, not to make light of the fact that it, which oh, no. is which is why 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 does no one ever do it, and why do we have hundreds, if not thousands, of record systems sitting out there in the world that are practically unusable by actually you know in, in at least one case even the records team that were maintaining them and they just sit there and nobody seems to ask these questions like why have we got a record system that no one is using what, what so I, why? I guess the question for you is that you know how, how do you how do you just why just why that's all just why <laughs> just why well i think it's a really really good question and it's actually a question that's being asked more widely at the moment so in records I think there hasn't this hasn't traditionally been part of the process and yeah, there's been func there's been functional yeah. classification and that's the end and nothing else yeah. and oh it's legislative it's legislative so we can't change it yeah. once it's in and so you know you've just got to learn to use it even though no one yeah. can use it yeah so there's there's lots of things going on there that I'm going to try. And <laughs> Excellent. If you just Excellent. If, yeah. if you can just solve those yeah. problems for us while you're here, then I I think well, we'll call this a good podcast. I know, right? <laughs> I know, right? It will be a revolution. All right. So the first thing is the um what you just said there about well, it's a functional classification. It's legislative, right? It is human behaviour to only do what you can control, right? So you can, if you say it's legis, it's in the legislation, so we have to do it. You're just going to have to do it, 
and you ha- are on a time deadline and somebody up above says you has to do- have to do it, then you're going to do it because you probably don't have the power or the permission or the resources or the time to do it any differently. So everybody just does what they need to do to get it done. Um, but this, so this process is more widely used in um, software design and product development. Um, and even now there's all these tech redundancies happening and the people who are going are the user researchers because, and it's, and it's because people have said they haven't been able to prove their value. Right. Um, but it's really hard to prove your value when you were brought on for the wrong reasons, right? When you were brought on to solve, you can't magically solve the fact that humans behave weird and don't <laughs> behave the way that you, were, you don't behave the way that we want them to. You, you were brought time. in to make them do the thing. Yeah, yes, right? the, yes. the, the way we want so, them to. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So when you've been brought in to do that, then it's very, very hard. To succeed so um long story short is the world's still working on trying to figure out how to do this and nobody's nobody's cracked it um oh i've cracked it regularly (laughs) well there you go (laughs) all the time that's a that's a that's kind of aussie slang unfortunately carl Uh, Well, the Aussies will get it for everybody else. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so it is persistence, patience, <laughs> and um, being definitive and purposeful. So basically with this, with this work, you have to set – an example that if we do, if we set it up right and we do it well, we will get something useful out of it. We're not going to um, change the universe as much as I'd like to. But um, hopefully we can build trust. The other thing is the people that you talk to, I will say this, you go and talk to people, make it really, really clear in the organisation that that's what you're doing. So do it all out in the open and that builds some trust and engagement more widely that, oh, you're talking to us. Oh, this isn't being done to us. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, do it in the open and then share the share what you've heard as well. And so and give people the opportunity to feedback. So you might do that in a presentation. The other thing you can do is um, say, well, we went out and we talked to some people. And we heard X, Y, Z. And now we want to hear if that resonates with other people. So we're just going to do a quick survey to check X, Y, Z with some wider people. And then you've gone narrow and got some qualitative and you've gone broad and got some quantitative, but without a huge amount of investment. This None of this has to be a huge investment. You can go and um, hire me to do it for you. <laughs> but you can also do it. You can do some of this yourself and get really good results. You just have to be um, definitive and purposeful about what you're doing. And interested. And interested. 
Yeah, well, if yeah, you're not yeah. interested, then maybe, yeah. <laughs> Should you be pushing records management systems on people? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think we've and, said no in recent episodes. Well, yes, I think we, I think we have. Well, but I'm just, no, I mean, I'm just thinking, it's, about, it's about how narrowly you define what you mean by that. Like, of course, <laughs> of course, people need a place to put stuff and be able to, you know, find it yeah. again and trust what they found. Like, that's no one, no one would dispute that one. Sorry, Judy. And I'm, I'm wondering about the, the constraints of the tech on what you're asking people and what you do with the results of that so I mean it quite often happens that or it does to me anyway that uh, the technology has already been chosen mm. for whatever it is yeah um, and so you're really trying to make the best of that uh, and how do you how do you factor that in with what you're asking people because you can't just kind of go, well, what are you doing? What would you like? How do you feel? Without being aware that actually you may not be able to deliver some things that they'd actually would really help them. If you so I'm just, I'm just going to bring us back and reiterate once again that you are not getting a wish list from them of what they want. Right, right. You're understanding their context so that you can then match it to what needs to happen and understand what's in between that. So if you know that people um, are struggling to find things because the folder structure isn't meaningful to them, that's something you can change, You can't, but you can't change the tech. And again, if you understand the context and you know, you know the tech that's being implemented that part of that gap analysis is, again, building the training and the awareness and the mm. engagement. But I will also say another thing you can do is um, you can do – so we talked about what's more um, open and um, open discovery about understanding people's context, but then you can also do more targeted um, sort of usability testing where you sit down with people and set them a task and watch them do that. Yeah. And if they're key tasks that you know that they need to do, then, and again, if you structure it in a way where you're getting robust data where you can see patterns, you can be, you'll be able to say definitively, well, we know that people need to do X, Y, Z, but they're struggling here or they're struggling there. There's, we can't change that functionality on the system because it's out of the box. So that's going to be a training need. That's something that we put in training or we make people aware of it. So I think just because you can't change the technology and I don't think I've, I don't know if I've ever built anything from scratch. Um, yeah, doesn't mean that you can't um, understand about what people are trying to do and find ways mm. to help them. Yeah, makes total sense again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think um, what, what you said about not trying to sort of elicit a wish list, I think is really important yeah. for um, probably the more regular listeners yeah. to this podcast to kind of think, well, you know, design's not just about sort of going, oh, what would you like, <laughs> you know? No. Um, you know, and, and I think there's a risk of perhaps 
prejudging it as sort of like, oh, well, it's not going to work for us because we have to get these outcomes. And so we can't sort of go thinking about this user design stuff because, you know, people can't just work the same way they do at home. But it's like, well, that's okay. Like, <laughs> you know, it's not, we're not saying, um, you know, we want to find out what color people like or something. We're, you know, trying to, trying to solve a problem within a particular business context. Yeah. But I mean, this well, seems and a business problem. Yeah, this seems to me to be to be one of these other levers that you can pull. To, you know, it's, let's just go with the analogy lever that you can yeah. pull to 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 make the thing you're trying to do effective. And yeah, th- this is the you know the 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 sort of effectiveness efficiency trade off that, that that we that we're always trying to make. You know, the the problem is that we try we seem to try and make this. Um, effectiveness versus efficiency trade-off in the direction of the most efficient implementation of a compliant records management system rather than a really effective implementation of something that, you know, gets 90% of the way there or 80% of the way there because we've realised that, you know, we can only get to 80% effectiveness um, without sacrificing the things that we really actually can't sacrifice. But, you know, if we don't sacrifice a few things and get away from a completely compliant system, then we're only going to get, you know, the 3 to 5% capture rate that someone who will remain nameless um, but used to be a regulator, um, you know, posted on the internet one day that they think EDRMS capture rates are at. I mean, that seems to be the trade-off. Well, my question to you, can I, can I do you a really, really awful nanny question? Has the system ever in itself ensured compliance? No, of course not. Never, <laughs> never. Yeah, but, yeah. But this is, yeah, but, yeah. But, but somehow th- this is what I see all the time. I see a, a compliant implementation, you know, it goes along and it ticks all of those little boxes that say, system is compliant and then 95% of the organization are working somewhere else but we it's almost like we draw a line of responsibility at system implemented correctly whether whether yeah, or not people yeah tick yeah. whether or not people use it um that's not our problem you know that that's you know well we've got the policy that says people must and therefore that's their problem people i i don't know what it is people don't ask why, or they ask why, and then they run into a, one of the the sacred cows of records management, you know, like functional classification, which is an absolute disaster disaster in ninety eight percent of the places that I've ever seen it implemented, which is practic- which is basically everywhere. Um, and they go, oh, that's you know, we can't do it any other way. When you know, I'm yet to find anyone anything that says you must do it like that. So I know I've just sprayed a whole big, you know, Trump. whatever, um, <laughs> you know, list of, you know, wish list out there, which is exactly what we said you shouldn't do. But what, why, why do we get? Why is it that we get stuck there when everything that you're saying, Amy, again, seems really sensible? You know, that basic idea that well, people aren't doing the thing we need them to do. Let's go and find out why. And you know what? Let's go and find out how often they're not doing the thing that, that that we're expecting them to do so we can get a sense of the scope of the problem. I mean, I, I just, I 
I guess I don't understand why that's not just obvious because I think about 80% of my blog articles boil down to that. Um, And I guess I'd really love to understand, you know, if you've got some insight into that. Um, And for people who are thinking, you know, we'd love to do some of this stuff, you know, how can you start to convince the rest of your organisation that this is something that needs to be done? Oh, man, well, that's like... (laughs) That's that's a thousand blog posts that are already on the internet. I've written about four hundred, so you know when I get to a thousand, I'll, uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll I'll come back to you. Um, so this is actually something that I am really interested in at the moment. This is my raison d'être at the moment. Like, why can we not get people to do this? <laughs> um. Because I've been I'm doing this for a long time and I'm getting tired because it is common sense. This is common sense. If everybody understood this, I wouldn't have a job and that would be great. But nobody nobody gets it. So I'm starting to understand it is it is some of it is fear. So just why would we we said we're going to implement this thing. Why would we go and open up a can of worms? Um, and also it's about um, the way that things are designed in a business context is that you do things because you can claim you've got return on investment. The return on investment for this is fuzzy. <laughs> it's there. To say the least, yeah. Yeah, but it's fuzzy. So you can't say we will have implemented a system by tomorrow, you know, and it will tick 400 of the requirements that we said that it needed to um, meet. You Like with this stuff, it's, it's, it's just fuzzy. So you can, but you can work on, on um, understanding what, the return on investment is you just have to set those KPIs at the beginning. So you have to work with the senior stakeholders to be able to say what the KPIs are. And it seems like, um, and there are different ways you can do that. You can set them as satisfaction. So user satisfaction, or you could, you must have measurements for whether or not stuff is records are being managed appropriately. I was just thinking this is actually very, uh, you know, it's, it's the same conversations we have around information and record stuff is that, like, you know, how do you measure the value of what you're doing so that you can articulate um, basically that you should stick around and still have a job and, you know, and, and continue to do the fun bits, basically, you know. Um, so so I, I do think it's, a, it's a, a common point probably in terms of fuzziness. People do measure random things like how many documents are going where, but um, I find it pretty hard. It doesn't tell you anything. Really hard, really hard to tie that to any kind of an outcome. I mean, you know, as in like, why is this organisation here and what do we deliver? It's like, hey, cool, I've got five hundred things. Yes. (laughs) I mean, if if you want to five things, if if you want it to be effective, you've actually got to go out and you've got to start looking at your business processes and you've got to sample. You know, okay, that process. You know, we 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 run it five thousand times a year. I've sampled, you know, two hundred of those, which is you know reasonably representative, and therefore, 
you know, and I know that we should be filing 48 documents for every single one of those processes. And that process for the whole of last year filed 320 documents in the records management system. And therefore, we're, we're light by about 199,700 documents. So, you know, our compliance rate is X. And I think that's what, yeah. you know, we've, we've really got to do. Or we've got to start, you know, I, you know, some people that we, that we all know, um, one of the universities, you know, that they went out and actually got a, a, an audit firm to come in and do an audit to look at their effectiveness. But, and, you know, they got a very low number. I think it was 2% capture rate in the end. So, you know, they, and they were, honestly, you, you watch them when they talk about that, they look like they're going to vomit. Um <laughs> But, you know, now one of the things they do is they watch Microsoft 365, you know, how much stuff are we creating in Microsoft 365? And they've actually moved their entire practice in that direction. But, you know, we should be able to look at things like Microsoft 365 because it's the creation point for 99% of documents in an organization and say, right, however much stuff is being created in there. Well, if we're not getting similar creation rates in whatever our approved record system is, if it's not Microsoft 365, you know, what's the delta? What's causing it? But I think people have got to want to look. I, I think what you said about yeah. fear and, you know, ang- anxiety is, I mean, I think it's really on point. You know, I think there's a, I wrote an article a little while ago talking about, you know, the sorts of collusive relationships that we get into with our executive and with regulators where, you know, it's almost like a, oh God, no, I, I it's like the first thing that sprang to mind was don't ask, don't tell. You know, it's that kind of idea that, you know, well, we're not we're not going to go and ask when we're, we're not going to go and um, ask what our compliance rate is, or, or we're we're going to expect that you don't ask what our compliance rate is, and we won't tell you that you know our compliance rate is miles from where it should be, because then chief executives get to continue signing the compliance statement at the end of every year, and the records team get to keep going the way they're going without anybody having to own up to the fact that well, you know. We've got a compliant record system, but you know there's there's not much in it, and to do something about that would be a big expenditure, and no one wants to and no one wants to deal with that problem. Well, and they don't need to because on the surface it's all fine. So it's again, you, again, you can start doing like a little research thing on the pe- these stakeholders, right, and start thinking about them as humans in the system. And what motivates them is saying that we did a thing and the project finishing on time. And it's not their motivators are different to yours and different from the users again. Mm. So that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess you want to complete a thing. You want to know it's within a cost envelope and you don't want people yep. screaming, but provided they're not screaming, you know, provided it's not front page news that something's broken. Yep then you're probably all right. Yeah, but, and you're like, you're, you're signing the thing that says that it's fine. But it yeah. is it is a it is an incentives problem, though, too, isn't it? We've talked about this before. I mean, do people really care about completing a thing? I mean, I think records teams do because records teams tend to, you know, I, I keep talking to people who have been in their organisation for 18 years, 20 years. You know, this week I talked to at least four people who had been in their organisation for longer than 15 years, you know, which is... Like longer than the tenure of their last, you know, six chief executives and last, you know, mm-hmm. eight chief information officers. So I, I feel yeah. like records people really do care about completing things, but I don't get the same. I don't know how to get from completing to that effectiveness, you know, and the incentive structure in 
lots of the organizations I deal with seems to be weighted towards, well, we need to start the project and then we need to preferably leave the organization before the project is completed. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's, that's what was in my head in terms of completing a thing is that project mindset of like, yeah, Yeah. I've rolled out a tech and now I can say I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. I I can put that on my CV and I, yeah, I'm done. Yeah. So, I mean, if you wanted to, if you wanted to make sure that a project was effective, Amy, right Mm. from the start, (laughs) (laughs) we've got you on to ask you some simple questions. Um, So you want me to have an existential crisis on your podcast? (laughs) I, I have one every, I have one every time we do one. So, you know, I don't see why it should be different for anybody else. Yep. Okay. Try and edit it out. The question is, how do I make a good project? Well, I, well basically, does human seem to design have a role in improving the success of projects? How about that? Yes. Is that- oh, yes. How about just one? Yes. <laughs> All right. Problem solved. <laughs> is that a good place to wrap it up? I think so. I think it, I think it probably is. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amy. That was just really uh, enlightening and also very enjoyable. (laughs) So see you all next time. Thank you. See ya. Bye.